Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ilan Jerno. If you were to visit a college campus sometime this fall along with thousands of incoming freshmen, you'd probably attend a fair where student groups recruit for their cause. There are usual suspects, their tennis club, film geeks, debate, but almost certainly you'll find a table or more than one for an activist group that's affiliated with what's called the BDS movement, which stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. And the target of this movement is the State of Israel. Now, unless you spend time on campus or follow the happenings that go on in academia, you may not have heard of the BDS crowd, but, which includes professors and academics and intellectuals and non-governmental organizations. It's rather large, uh, even though it's not in the public eye as much as many people would like it to be. And its basic idea is that Israel's policies are so bad, and we'll talk about what they have on their uh, rap sheet, they're so bad that they require these measures, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions, in order to get Israel to change its policies toward the Palestinians. Now, in a number of ways, this is a really peculiar movement, considering the long list of countries that you might think of whose policies and documented violations of individual rights deserve to be protested and sanctioned and so forth. Just think of Syria or think of Iran. And nevertheless, Israel is the peculiar fixation for this movement. So even if you haven't encountered it in the public sphere, this movement does have influence on public debate. So I wanted to talk today about what is this movement, what does it seek, what does it manage to do, and what to make of it. To answer some of these questions about the BDS movement, I've invited Dr. Asaf Romorovsky, who tracks and writes about this movement. Asaf, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Now, one of the reasons I've invited him, and I think he's a great fit, he's a historian and an analyst of the Middle East. And just so happens that he is an expert on one of the issues within the Palestinian-Israeli conflict that the BDS crowd protests over. And it has to do with the issue of Palestinian refugees, which is a very complicated topic, and I'm hoping we can dig into that and get some clarity on it. Now, he is the co-author of a 2013 book called Religion, Politics, and the Origins of the Palestinian Refugee Relief. Uh, that's from Palgrave Macmillan. And finally, he's, he wears another hat. He is also executive director of an organization called Scholars for Peace in the Middle East. So Asaf, maybe you can break this down for us. So tell us, what is it that the BDS movement is about, and what are they, what are they campaigning for? Well, um, the complexities, as you've described in the introduction of the BDS movement, uh, go wide and far. I mean, um, you did mention that there is a great deal of focus on the campuses. However, there are a great deal of uh, outside detractors that are trying to grapple with the idea of what BDS, you know, to your question, actually stands for and demands. Uh, a closer look reveals, and what we've discovered as one tries to kind of go into the weeds of understanding BDS, that it really is going, uh, it's seeking the destruction of the state of Israel uh, through the means of isolation. Uh, and uh, we are seeing seeds of this uh, throughout the campuses. The In North America, in comparison to Europe, there's still a great deal of debate about whether or not uh, the call or demand for the boycott, divestment, and sanction movement is purely uh, anti-Zionist or is it anti-Semitic? Um, and for the for the non-observers and those who listen to the uh, the debates about BDS, um, it comes off as as if BDS is legitimate criticism because 
those who advocate for the cause would like to say it's purely anti-Zionist. Uh, not only that, they would go on to say that it's only about uh, Israel's so-called illegal occupation of the settlements. Uh, and so as if the debate is really about borders or characters or whatnot. So to that end, you see many Jewish and many Israeli individuals who support the idea of BDS, individuals who call for a Zionist BDS, referring to only the part of the uh, uh, disputed lands, referring to uh, the post-67 borders. But the fact of the matter is that the entire tactic, and if you question uh, the BDSers, individual like Omar Barghouti and Ali Abumina and others who have advocated for the BDS, they're really not seeking uh, and they have no end goal as far as a two-state solution, we're going to end when violence subsides, uh, anything along those lines. The real aim goal is in the maximalist, maximalist view uh, of what they stand for is really about Israel's uh, existence and the fact that the only way to highlight that is through demonization, delegitimization, and isolationism. Uh, a, a more historical and a much more deeper analytical look at this is really uh, to understand the fact that this is really the tactic of BDS stems from, uh, comes directly out of a PLO playbook. Uh, the idea that there was an understanding within the Palestinian movement that they may not be able to defeat Israel militarily. However, in the eyes of the public opinion and public discourse, not to mention the use of soft power, which is how it's cascaded through academia, then they were able to make the case. And so if you look at the historical narrative that we are seeing and we are viewing today, uh, from 1967 onward, I mean, the biggest problem, you know, as highlighted by the BDS movement, which is, you know, one of the measures of their success, is that the Zionist movement has really lost the narrative. It is a clear uh, understanding today that the Israelis are the Goliath and the Palestinians are the David. Palestinians can do no wrong and the Israelis can do no right. And if that is the case, then um, this feeds into the larger architecture of BDS by depicting Israel as the worst demon of every possible activity the world has ever seen. Uh, and so that message has cascaded from a public sphere into um, the public mind of those who are observing the conflict from the outside. That's one part of it. Uh, the other part of it, which is a much more deeper and a much more endemic problem that um, I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, and you mentioned um, my role with SPME, the entire raison d'etre of SPME is to actually uh, mobilize faculty. I mean, our, understand our belief is that students are transient, but faculty are forever, and if you want to look at a campus environment, you have to focus on faculty, and much of this information is articulated and cascaded through academe through faculty departments and, and other areas like that. So, for example, Middle East studies uh, has long been hijacked by Saudi money, uh, Arab money, and, and buying chairs, buying departments, with the idea that if one buys a chair and one buys a department, one also determines the politics that are being taught um, within uh, those spheres and those areas. Um, and there has been a great deal of movement, I would say, in North America specifically, uh, where you're seeing a rise of individuals, academicians who pride themselves on um, not their scholarship, but their scholarship by uh, their actions. Some individuals like uh, you know that I would 
characterize or define as scholar activists. And so anytime they support the underdog cause, in this case, the Palestinian cause, it kind of validates their own scholarship. You're seeing many of these individuals who are involved with the movement calling for boycott, divestment, such actions, protests, all validating their own academic bona fides uh, by finding this as a just and right movement. There, there has also been a, um, I would say, a hijacking of the language of um, social movements, uh, justice, peace. Uh, you know, the, this kind of language has been very, very attractive to the younger generation who are looking to find a better place in the world. And so when they're talking about these issues and these terms, it all seems like it's okay uh, without looking to really see, are they really seeking any kind of peace in the Middle East? Is it really looking to bring about the parties together? Uh, none of that is actually the case. I think the best illustration of this uh, was at some point uh, during uh, the rise uh, of you know, the uh, academic associations who were talking about you know, supporting BDS or not, uh, there, was a, there was a question about whether or not, really the, the question you started with, what's the end goal? Uh, and uh, at some point, uh, even Mahmoud Abbas said that I don't support BDS per se because I have to engage in conversations with the Israelis on the diplomatic front and whatnot. And the leaders of the movement said, you don't know what you're talking about. It really also give you a kind of the, the disconnect between even the constituency that the BDSers supposedly represent and what they actually do uh, on campuses around the world and in other places, churches, uh, unions, and other things along those lines. So recently there was an organization of scholars that made news, and I think it was an embarrassment for them, the American Studies Association. And I think they tried to pass some sort of uh, agreement among their members to boycott Israeli academics. Can you just break down what, it, just as a case study of how that played out and the reaction to it? Sure. I mean, the ASA, which is the American Studies Association, uh, got a lot of, um, made a lot of noise because they were the first actually largest uh, association of academicians uh, that decided to boycott the state of Israel. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, what you saw is that uh, close to 300 university presidents condemned the boycott, which was a positive side. However, on the negative side, of course, you saw individuals, academicians, members of the ASA who said, um, you know, we support this, this is our right, etc., uh, and we should go, we should go with this. Uh, one of the more famous quotes that came about uh, during the debate about the ASA was the former president of the ASA, Curtis Mraz who gave a famous quote in the New York Times when he was questioned about why do you boycott Israel? Is Israel as bad as Tibet, China, Syria, other places? And his response, well, maybe not as bad, but bad enough. Uh, and that underscoring the word, but bad enough, is kind of the uh, mentality within academics. Uh, you know, Israel has become within, um, especially, specifically, uh, in the humanities, but in the social sciences, but you're also seeing it cascading now into the STEM areas, uh, a litmus test for what it means to be a good liberal academic. And so individuals who see problems or issues with the disputed areas, they say, well, this is not actually wrong. You know, Israel does, you know, enough wrong things and whatnot. And so in their myopic view, where they see 
uh, BDS only focused on one part of the conflict and not looking to actually see uh, what what the actual movement calls for, they will support that narrative by being critical. Um, interestingly enough, when the ASA uh, the ASA led to um, people on the left and people on the right coming to terms with the fact of what the demand of the ASA really is, and, and you saw many individuals, many colleagues and friends of mine who were involved with the American Studies Association, who left because it even challenged their own liberal views. They said, well, we may, we may not agree that, you know, 67, not 67, or other kind of things, but we do agree as well as a right to exist. And, and that challenged their narrative. And so that shifted the reality of what played out with the ASA. Um, on a positive note, not everybody in the ASA supported it, though it got a lot of traction. Uh, the Mid-Atlantic region and the, the California region um, decided not to buy into the national call for BDS. Uh, furthermore, uh, in the fact that you have many members of the American Studies Association who are Israeli, are they boycotting their own colleagues? So you had these kind of different attempts to dissect and curve the language to say, well, we're not boycotting you as an individual, we're boycotting your institution that you represent uh, in order to make it seem like it's okay. Um, and so th those kind of things were going along uh, during the ASA vote. But uh, many of the individuals who are pushing this uh, are, to a large extent, very um, ideological in their view of the conflict, uh, and they see Israel as the root cause of many of the problems. So in their minds, uh, BDS um, you know, fits the narrative in order to make the case for highlighting the challenges that comes out of Israel without thinking about the larger implications. Um, you know, many other study, many other academic associations have jumped on the BDS bandwagon, including the Modern Language Association of late, the Middle East Studies Association, uh, and who are laying the groundwork for a full BDS call. And this fits into the larger uh, Palestinian demand that's coming out of um, out of directly out of Ramallah, calling for cultural and academic boycotts against Israel. Uh, and this is the just and academic right thing to do. Uh, and that's how it's been sold and cascaded. However, when you, know, you take many of these individuals on for a real debate, you do find that uh, many of them don't really know the ins and outs of the conflict. Uh, furthermore, uh, the fact that academics who pride themselves on research and inquisitive research would accept the kind of, um, you know, what, you know, what is perceived to be as real data is an embarrassment, I would say, to an academic to actually look and to see what kind of data is actually presented to say that you need to boycott the entirety of the state of Israel. Uh, I mean, there's a total uh, disconnect between what their own political advocacy is uh, and what they believe, what they know, what is truthful when it comes to the Middle East reality and the reality of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Let me jump in there because you raised the issue of uh, data and evidence. So it, it seems like for students who go in and, and buy into this idea and who man the mock checkpoints and who put up displays and who go around chanting on campus and it's understandable in a certain way because they're students and they're just there to learn. But you, you raise the question of academics and the standards that apply to them. So can you just illustrate what you mean by the, the what passes for evidence and why you think it's an embarrassment? 
Well, I mean, I'll look at the, um, you know, just, um, you know, the case study of the Modern Language Association, which I happened to attend uh, in their last meeting uh, that happened in Chicago last year. Uh, and there was an actual panel uh, by one of the leaders of the BDS movement, Omar Barghouti. Uh, and um, again, you know, the, the information he presented uh, was anecdotal at best. Uh, making, you know, poly- mostly polemics, uh, you know, accusations, you know, Israel is an apartheid state uh, and the kind of activism that happens in the state of Israel and how the treatment of minorities in Israel and the Palestinian population and whatnot, uh, which is totally anecdotal. Uh, and there was nothing there to actually back it up. Um, and it was, you know, Barghouti himself is an anomaly in the sense that he is the same individual who received degrees from an Israeli institution while at the same time looking to call for an academic boycott on those same institutions. And so when he was questioned about that, he was actually said, well, that was a personal decision, but still the boycott is the only way to go. Uh, but what you do find uh, is that um, – there's a great deal of media bias, media propaganda, uh, especially, you know, what works in favor of those who support the BDS movement as current events. So, for example, when you saw during Operation Protective Edge, um, you saw the riots and you saw the protests uh, in around North America, uh, you know, calling Israel an apartheid state, calling to end the siege in Gaza, the fact that Israel is violating human rights, the fact that Israel is targeting schools and women and children, uh, all the kind of um, usual um, smoke screens that are put out there to actually say to depict Israel in that kind of format without actually looking at actually what is happening on the ground. Uh, and that in itself drives a lot of the individuals to say, you know, well, it's not a bad thing to boycott and we should, we should support that initiative. And so uh, that's kind of what's added to the layer of depth or the lack of depth, I would argue, when individuals look at why to boycott and why not to boycott. Um, it was interesting, you know, uh, the Middle East Studies Association of America, which is the umbrella of all Middle East studies, which includes, of course, the state of Israel and many Israeli academics, they did not pass the resolution for boycott. Uh, but there was a great fear that Israeli academics who were part of MESA, uh, and there's a great deal of problems with Mesa because it's been hijacked by the Arab narrative, Saudi money and whatnot. Um, but there was a point where even they came to the conclusion that this may be problematic for individuals who are their peers. Uh, I, you know, if you look at the resolution that they came out with, I would you know, take it further. While they did not pass the BDS, they laid the groundwork for passing it next year. Uh, so they're, they're going to be there soon enough. Uh, but this is all part of what I was talking about before, about how Israel was perceived uh, in um, liberal academic circles when it comes to Israel. Those who are looking for an underdog cause, you mentioned the students, any underdog cause in the world, um, you know, from peace and conflict, the LGBT movement, women's rights and whatnot, and students who are looking for justice uh, and issues to support uh, in some way, shape, or form, it is the Israeli-Palestinian dynamic, but specifically the Palestinian cause, that becomes a um, the tour de force, and the, really the you know where they support and where they put their eggs in that basket as somehow reflecting their cause uh, that has nothing to do with reality. So much of the um, 
smokes and mirrors, uh, apartheid walls, and you know uh, things along those lines, die-ins, uh, uh, fake eviction notices. They're all part of this larger movement to make and depict Israel as the worst human rights violator and the worst uh, entity on earth. So just um, just flesh that out. So when you're talking about die-ins and, and fake eviction notices, those sound like student pranks. So just f- paint the picture of what that looks like on campus. So, you know, a die-in is basically a uh, so-called uh, impact of after Israelis supposedly carpet bomb areas. And so you have people lying with fake blood students on, on, on main quads on the campus. Apartheid walls are, you know, how the Israeli fence is being depicted. Uh, the, inver- the use of Holocaust inversion, which is extremely pervasive within this larger topic to depict Israelis uh, as Nazis. Again, validating and not even pretending to allude, but of course uh, codifying the fact that Zionism is indeed a form of racism, alluding to, of course, the UN resolution. Uh, Anything to make those kind of statements. Fake eviction notices, again, uh, the fact that, you know, uh, Jewish students and non-Jewish students have been had flyers under their dorms saying, you know, your, your room is about to be um, you're, you're evicted because of the occupation, and this is what you should. This is what Israelis and Pal- this is what Palestinians go through every day. This is what you need to be aware of, uh, and you should cry out and speak for this kind of justice. Uh, this is the, how it's all being masqueraded uh, into the larger environment. Um, to that end, uh, the student part, while it's very problematic, uh, you know what you do have is also an entire cadre of professors who teach based on their political views and what is, I would say, their political advocacy when it comes to these matters, um, specifically on the Israeli-Palestinian dynamic, and the rhetoric is much worse. Uh, and the fact that they're able to be in a position of power, uh, the fact that they, you know, at times have intimidated students, um, you know, th- there is a clear, vivid, uh, you know, to, to uh, lack of balance when it comes to these matters. I mean, I teach... Um, the Arab-Israeli conflict. I mean, I teach American foreign policy in the Middle East. I mean, I you know include both you know the Israeli narrative, the Palestinian narrative. That's not what is commonly practiced uh, in, in most of these uh, classrooms. I, I want to go back to the the way BDS is presenting itself. So I, I went to one of their websites, and there, there were three goals listed there. And this might not be exhaustive, but these seem salient. Uh, they call for an end to the Israeli occupation. They want improved rights for Palestinian citizens of Israel. And then the third one, which is what I, I want to turn to, is the issue of refugees, Palestinian refugees. On the, other, on the first two, you've already mentioned there's a question about how, what kind of evidence is being presented on those issues and how politicized it is. I want to turn now to the issue, which I think is, for many people, intimidating because it's so historically rich and complicated, the issue of the Palestinian refugees, um, so what exactly is the issue, uh, what is the history, and then what is, how is it presented? Well, it's, you're right to point out that it's a very rich and a very complex issue. It is the, it is the evergreen demand of the Arab-Palestinian narrative to demand uh, what they perceive as the right, or divine right for that matter, and I'm adding those words to emphasize how, that is, how, how it's being viewed within uh, Arab-Palestinian culture, uh, of, the, uh, of the return to uh, the reality pre-1948. 
And so the uh, United Nations came out with a resolution, 194, that demands a full right of return. Uh, interestingly enough, if you actually look in depth into the aspect of the right of return, um, in, it, while at the same vein asking for a right of return, one of the reasons the majority of the Arab world actually rejected 194 because in the same clause it also required the acceptance of Israel's right to exist. Uh, but you know nobody nobody talks about that or, or, or explains uh, the demand for the right of return. However, the the other part, which is also very complicated and very rich into the larger issue, is who is a Palestinian refugee? It is the only group. Um, of, of refugees who demand or claim refugee status, uh, who have the most expansive and largest definition of what it means to be a refugee. There, there are two UN agencies that are focused on refugee relief uh, on, on the larger stroke, on the kind of the broadest stroke possible. One is the UN Workers Relief Agency for Palestine Refugees, what is known as the acronym is UNRWA, and the other one is UNHCR, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. And the way they distinctively define each of those populations is very, uh, is very clear and very different. UNRWA defines a Palestinian refugee as anybody who was in mandatory Palestine between 1946 and 1948. And the kicker is, of course, and their descendants. It's the only population of refugees where one could inherit a status of refugeeness. And so for, to that end, this is why you have uh, millions of individuals all demanding a full right of return based on that definition. UNHCR, in contrast, only defines a refugee, which is a more uh, accurate and more legitimate way of looking at the situation, as only one generation, the generation that fled or fleed for their lives and lost their livelihood, and they have a, a, a much more uh, pragmatic definition uh, and a realistic definition of what it means to be a refugee. So, for example, if one were to actually parachute or adopt the definition of UNHCR and UNRWA based on the birth rate of individuals today, those who claim Palestinian refugeeness, uh, there would be no more than 40,000 individuals have a right of return call it a day. But when you, that's not the demand. The demand is a full right of return and their descendants. And based on the, this definition, Arab Israelis are also Palestinian refugees because they also fit into that uh, definition. And, and everybody who is a descendant, uh, Jordanians, even though Jordan is the only Arab country who's ever offered the Palestinian citizenship, they too have that, uh, can exercise that right. Uh, and so you have millions and millions of people who supposedly demand a right of return. And so the way it plays into the Palestinian narrative is that this is basically the demographic threat. And this is really the ultimate goal of when the BDSers demand, the pro-BDS movement, for a full right of return. Basically, the argument is that um, if Israel were a true democracy, then majority rules. And so if we basically are able to flood the state of Israel with millions and millions of Palestinians, UNRWA goes between 5 and 6 million, but based on the rate we're going now, it's the only population that continues to grow. You know, in 20 years from now, 10 years from now, it's going to be 15, 20 million individuals all demanding a right of return. So let me, let me just step in. So if I understand this correctly, in other conflicts, like World War II or uh, any other large, well-known conflict, there have been refugees 
And I, I take it that the definition in that case is the what you described as sort of the one generation uh, time frame. Is that accurate? That is correct. So what is so? How is it that the Palestinian refugee definition has become uh, ballooning in effect? How, how did that additional clause get put into it? Well. UNRWA had the advantage of coming to fruition a few months before UNHCR. And UNRWA was created as a temporary organization, I would say temporary that has no end, and a special case study when it comes to the Arabs of Palestine. Because the argument was, or the view, was that um, the land is still there. It's not been destroyed. And the fact that really it was the Zionists, the Jews, who robbed the land from us, and all we need to do is receive our justice and you know receive this right back, and we will be able to come back to homes that no longer exist. It's also a total um, denial and detachment of the reality of what happened in 48-49. That is to say that if the Arab world accepted partition and they accepted other uh, other proposals prior to 1948, there would have been an Arab and a Jewish state. Uh, it is the ultimate tension between statehood and rejectionism. And so, you know, from the Palestinian, Arab-Palestinian collective identity, the evergreen refugee mentality is an evergreen reminder of the Nakba and the fact that Israel's creation is this catastrophe that they describe when it comes to what happened in 1948. Uh, but nobody really looks, you know, and, and this is part of all of us who do and study refugees and look at the Israeli-Palestinian dynamic at large as to the reasons of why individuals left in 48-49. Uh, you know, the majority left because they were told to leave. Uh, and they left on their own volition uh, with the art, with the idea, you know, they were told by the Arab League, once we eradicate, and I'm paraphrasing here, the Zionist entity, we'll be able to come back to your homes. Um, there were some forcible removals, but the majority left on their own. Uh, and, uh, and when the reality came about, and Israel does come to fruition, uh, then there is a deflection from the Arab world not to accept responsibility for their own individuals. Uh, and, and for their own brethren. And they basically said uh, to UNRWA, uh, that comes about the same time, and this, you know, you're seeing this kind of escalation, you know, how UNRWA really transformed into a true uh, full-fledged advocate of the Palestinian cause by saying, we will, we will give, we the Arab world will give you money to support you, but we are not going to take responsibility for what the reality that happened in 1948-49. And so, as I said, with the exception of Jordan, no other Arab country ever offered them to remind the world of how egregious it was and to remind the world that this is the only thing that will bring just and peace to the Middle East. And for that reason, you have individuals from Nasser all the way to individuals like bin Laden and even individuals like um, you know, uh, Baghdadi today and people from ISIS uh, you know, who are demanding, you know, we're all going to... Um, conquer Jerusalem and come back and receive justice for the Palestinians. And this is how, unfortunately, the tragedy of the Palestinian cause, how they've been used and manipulated by their own Arab brethren uh, to, as a tool of propaganda. So this theme of uh, people versus the, so the Palestinian refugees as uh, pawns in, a, in the conflict, I'm curious, you've written about the UN 
Palestinian Refugee Agency, and you've called for its dismantlement, or, uh, or at least it's folding into the Palestinian Authority. So what, what do you see as the character of this organization now, the UN body, and why do you think it needs to be dissolved? Well, I think that uh, UNRWA itself has today become is a case study where the basically the cl- client has hijacked a service provider. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, another point uh, of difference between the two agencies is that UNRWA is also the largest employer of Palestinians in the tone of 30,000 Palestinians who are working for UNRWA and on the UNRWA payroll. And that's how UNRWA has been able to transform itself by employing Palestinians. They're the ones who are teaching uh, in the UNRWA schools. They're the ones who are involved in any kind of aid capacity. And so they control the narrative. They control exactly what's being taught. So we look at UNRWA textbooks and how they're used and how they teach. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, you know, even just looking at North America, uh, we in North America, the United States specifically, represent a third of UNRWA's annual budget. And so all funding this initiative. Uh, And so what is currently happening from a financial standpoint the Palestinian Authority gets money from USAID. There's also money coming in from UNRWA. There's a great deal of double dipping. Those individuals, if they were really looking to have a state, should be civil servant. They should become employees uh, of the um, of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, but that's not happening because UNRWA is first of all UNRWA's mission or UNRWA's goal will say when there is peace between Israelis and Palestinians. While at the same time, while they're making that statement, it's a catch-22. They are the gatekeeper of what I would argue is the one single issue that will ever uh, create peace with Israelis and Palestinians. All of the consistent demands for peace, 67, shared capital in Jerusalem and the right of return, you know, it's always been about the land issues. To my mind, this is the one guarantee, the refugee issue, that the conflict will never end. So bureaucracies have no incentive to, you know, get themselves out of business. They want to stay in business forever. That's their, and they have done that with the case study of UNRWA. And so, while so long as the limbo situation continues, and UNRWA still finds a role for its functionality and what it does, even though, as we saw in Operation Protective Edge, where you found caches of rockets and UNRWA schools and things along those lines, you know, the fact that they are been co-opted and coerced um, the fact that the former Secretary General of UNRWA, Peter Hansen, a Canadian in 2004, openly admitted that we hired members of Hamas. Uh, I mean, they make no distinction uh, when it comes to these issues. They're all part of their constituency. And so that's part of the issue, that when you're talking about the one single tension of creating a Palestinian state, also requires that you can no longer claim refugeeness. It really means why you have to create a state, because a state connotes accountability and transparency. It's the same reason why every leader, all the way up until Mahmoud Abbas, can go to the United Nations and say, I want a Palestinian state tomorrow, but I'm not willing to give up the right of return. That's a catch-22, ensuring the fact that nobody will accept that to, happen, to, to, to take place. You know, recently I, I, I co-authored an article, you know, illustrating the point even further about where Mahmoud Abbas at a press conference in Cairo, when he was asked about why won't you, Mahmoud Abbas, accept real refugees, real Palestinian refugees 
who are 48, 49, living in Syria, who are suffering and have been, you know, uh, forcing, uh, facing all these, you know, real li uh, life-threatening issues and being killed by, you know, the regime and whatnot, why won't you give them a right of return? And Abbas's comment in English that they, that they, that in his belief, he rather they die than to give up the right of return. That, you know, is the epitome uh, of pushing along this kind of propaganda and initiative uh, within that framework. To that end, that's exactly why the pro-BDSers, those who support BDS, cling on to this notion because it's the one thing that never ends. And it's the one thing that pushes demonization, delegitimization, and ultimately destruction of the state of Israel, while at the same time making it sound like these are legitimate claims. And that's how it plays into the entire architecture of the pro of those who support BDS. Well, that's breathtaking that you would rather see them die at the hands of ISIS or some of the other Islamists in the civ Syrian civil war than give them refuge right now when he can. Correct. Yeah. The, the, you know, the idea of, you know, just taking in a percentage or saving some of his own people while at the same time giving up the, the potential or, the, you know, the, the larger, you know, right of return at large is, is the biggest telling point about how he feels and how the entire psychology of Palestinian collective memory feels about the refugee issue. I mean, I, I would argue that um, Palestinian identity is correlated with Palestinian refugeeness. And to that end, nobody wants to give that up because to say to a Palestinian, you're no longer a refugee, is to say you're no longer a Palestinian. And so that's how generations of generations of individuals you know, who have no understanding of the issue have bought into a very simple and a very clear narrative that justifies and looks to condemn and remind the world that 1948 is the biggest atrocity that ever happened. And it's worse than anything possible, you know, worse than the Holocaust, worse than anything else. And the fact that they are still constant reminders to the world that this is the single number one issue in the Middle East, no less, is should exacerbates the movement and exacerbates all of those who want to use this uh, making an affront to Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian process at large, any kind of peace process, but really to show how Israel is and has always been the number one obstacle towards peace. Thank you. I just wanted to see where can people find out more about your work and the organization that you're involved with? Uh, so SPME has a website regarding BDS, and so that's uh, spme.org. Uh, which is Scholarship Peace in the Middle East. Uh, my personal work uh, can be found on my website, which is my last name, Ron Morawski, R-O-M-I-R-O-W-S-K-Y.com. And so a lot of the articles that I publish, uh, you know, and my book and whatnot uh, that I co-authored uh, are all on that website. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Much appreciated.